I said yesterday, some of us fear that maybe you wouldn't be able to be along at our convention this year. But the Lord has wonderfully undertaken, and I think some of us feel it's a real miracle that our brothers with us this morning, so well, cheerful and happy and ready, as always, to proclaim the word of God. If we were like some other denominations, we would have an ordination service and crown our brother as bishop of a great gospel fellowship. Well, we don't have to do that for he is that anyway. So, Bishop O'Hare, will you come and give us a message the Lord is laid on your heart? Yeah, Wayne knew me. I had an arch, but I lost it. <laughs> That's a plain bishop. I used to be an archbishop. <laughs> well, I've been called everything that you can think of. You didn't know that Brother Stan and I are DD, did you? You want to get this pamphlet back here? The answer to John R. Rice. He wrote some awful things about us. And in that you'll find out we're DDs. We're dogmatic dispensationalists. Well, I wrote an article in the, one of the Chicago papers, how foolish the modernist Jews were to join with the modernist Protestants in denying the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody sent a copy of it to Rabbi Wise. You heard of him. And he wrote me a, just a postal card, and he said, My dear sir, you're a first class. And he called me an animal with long ears, and it wasn't a rabbit. He called me a first class jackass. Just think of it. All the names have been called. And then the uh, superintendent of men at Moody Institute uh, several of the students had been out, and uh, we loaded them up with books. We always load them up with books when they come. Went back, and he says, are those O'Hare's books? He said, yes. He said, look out, look out. He said, why? Why? He said, he's a Buckmanite. He said, he's a what? He's a Buckmanite. What's a Buckmanite? I don't know, but it's something awful. <laughs> he said, do you mean a Bollinger right? Oh, yes, yes, that's what I meant. Well, what is the Bollinger right? He said, I don't know, but he's one. <laughs> well, we get called everything. Uh, but uh, in the Bible, we're called saints. And we thank God that uh, we bear this reproach. And all who will suffer, I say this, and I say it to you truthfully, any Christian who is not suffering who is not suffering, for his stand for Christ and the word of God is out of the will of God. If you're not suffering, you're not a Bible Christian. You better begin suffering. And if you want to know how to begin, like the men, I'll let you know. Now, I've also been called a ramifying exegete. But I hope as I go into this message this morning, I won't be like the preacher. And if I heard him preach, and he says, my goodness, he said, if that fellow's text had had the small pup, his sermon never would have caught it. 
problem. You've heard that, haven't you? And uh, I was so much interested in that discussion yesterday. And that is for us to decide what part of the spiritual program during the period covered by the book of Acts is for us today and what part is not. I think that covers the situation pretty well. Let me say this to you, that some of you know it already. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I counted 92. You can count 93 times such statements as this, that the scriptures might be fulfilled, that the word of the prophet might be fulfilled. As it is written, so it is written. Ninety-two times. And that's what we understand by Romans 15, 8, when we read that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision to confirm the promises made unto the fathers by the prophets. There was a man by the name of Bruce Barton who wrote a book entitled The Man Nobody Knows. And uh, right after he wrote that, we had D. Campbell Morgan, and he said, I just read a book by Bruce Barton, The Man Nobody Knows. And he said, Bruce told the truth, because nobody knows the man he wrote about. And he said, moreover, nobody wants to know him. But in that book, he said, according to evangelical Christianity, Jesus Christ had to fit into the mold of prophecy. He couldn't have done anything different than he did do because he had to fulfill the scriptures. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and put him in the sepulcher, but God raised him from the dead. He had to be born in, in, in uh, Bethlehem. He had to be born of a virgin. He had to be born to be a governor of Israel. And as Zechariah said in the first chapter of Luke, the Lord God has visited his people Israel. And he said, according to the promises that he made to Abraham and David, they're going to be delivered from the hands of their enemies that they may serve the Lord without fear. But the angel had already said that he would be born to take the throne of David and reign over the house of Jacob. And at the end of his kingdom, there would be no end of his kingdom. Now he had a ministry of confirmation. But what may surprise us is this. I believe that during the Acts period, not only do we have the oral ministry of Paul there and 
the others. What we believe that 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and Romans were all written during the period covered by the book of Acts. And it is very interesting to note that 72 times in those writings you find the same expression that the word of the prophet might be fulfilled as it is written, so it is written, or that the scripture might be fulfilled. You find only three references in the last seven epistles of Paul that we call the prison epistles. He refers there to a commandment, the first commandment that was made with promise. And there is a statement there that the Lord would ascend on high and lead captivity captive. But there is the absence, our brother Baker brought out, that you cannot prove by the silence of Scripture. And yet, uh, we can prove some things by the silence of Scripture. We do not have in those seven epistles the confirmation ministry that we, we have in part of the book of Acts and in the four Gospels. When we say Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision, we should emphasize the word was because he is not now. We cannot say he is a minister of the circumcision. He is now far above all principalities and powers, far above all heaven, where he is the head over all things under the church, which is his body, the filling up for him that filleth all in all. And he's far above all heavens. Now as we come to the book of Acts, I think it's well for us to go back to the twelfth chapter of Genesis. And if you'll get this, I don't know uh, what my terminal facilities are going to be this morning or when that dinner bell rings, but I want to leave three things with you. And that is to study the Bible in the light of the three seeds of Abraham. The whole Bible is the unfolding of a verse of Scripture in the 12th chapter of Genesis and repeated several times. Abraham, the Lord said, now notice the 12th chapter of Genesis, and when you study Abraham, you have a very interesting study, and it's very interesting to notice that is the, uh, you study it in the light of four C's. The call, the covenant, the circumcision, and the confirmation. He was 75 years old when he was called. And just uh, how long after that, before God made the first covenant, it was not long after that. But uh, he was called at the age of 75. And he was circumcised at the age of 99. And 
his name at that time was changed to Abram, the father of many nations. Then, in the 22nd chapter of the book of Genesis, I don't know how old uh, Isaac was when he was placed on the altar. You know, uh, I don't know what you know. Some of you knew a great deal about the uh, the Lutheran Church. I was an altar boy when I was a little tot. And uh, when they told me I had to go through hell to get to heaven, I quit them. I didn't like it. And uh, I studied some things, and uh, I've written a book back there entitled The Roman Catholic Church in the Light of the Roman Catholic Bible. And they uh, quote the second chapter of James to negate every statement that the Apostle Paul made concerning justification by faith. Even the words that Paul told to their first pope, Peter, when he said to him in Galatians 2.16, Peter, you know, you know, you know you're not doing right. You know that a man is justified by faith without the works of the law. And they quote the second chapter of James, that was not Abraham justified by faith when he offered Isaac on the altar. Therefore a man is justified not by faith only, but by works. Now if you carry that out, you and I would have to put our son on an altar to be offered to be justified by works. There are 22 statements that were justified by faith without works, and they take the one statement to nullify every statement that is made, justification by faith. Now when Abram put his son on the altar, that was 40 years after he was justified by faith. And he was not one with more righteous after he offered his son than he was before. In November 1899, 132 miles south of Shreveport, Louisiana, where I was auditor for a lumber company, the woman who is my wife told me the story that Jesus Christ died for my sin. And that night I was convicted of the fact that I was not only a sinner, but a lost sinner. When I was a little cop, I used to say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women, holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and the hour of our death. Well, I needed her to pray for me before I come to death. But anyhow, I had to pray that in our Father, and I cried many times over my sin. I knew I was a sinner, but the night I was saved, I found out I was a lost sinner. I was convicted by the Holy Spirit, and I heard the message that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. I received the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. 
I just had a friend come from Louisiana and he said that building has been torn down. He says you can't make that statement anymore. I made the statement I could go down and draw a little circle and in that circle one night at midnight I passed out of death into life while I was reading the Bible. Right after I read the Bible when they came to the place which is called Calvary. Now when the Lord died on that cross, he knew no sin, but he was made sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And when I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, God imputed his righteousness to me. As far as my standing is concerned, ten billion trillion years from this morning, in God's sight, I will not be one whit more righteous than I was the moment I received Christ as my Savior. My state is in something different. I must walk in the Spirit to fulfill the righteousness of the law, but I do not have to walk or behave or do anything. The old story back in Exodus, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, and three verses later, the Lord says, go forward. He never tells you to go forward till you stand still. Behold the Lamb of God which beareth away the sin of the world. You do not have to supplement the perfect redemptive work of Jesus Christ with any of your religious doings to be saved. You're saved by grace through faith without works by faith in the perfect redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you never see inside of a church building, if you're really trusting in the Lord, you'll be in heaven forever. To the praise of the glory of God's grace, wherein he hath graced us in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of God's grace. And in the ages to come, God will show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit which he shed upon us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Lord. I preached that same message right here at Cedar Lake in 1919. I was here with Paul Rader in the, when we, when they had their first summer conferences here, when Mr. Clendenon made the contribution, and they built the Clendenon Hotel here, which burned up. Then the chairman of our board of the North Shore Church, Mr. A.M. Johnson, bought five acres of ground and added to this ground way back there. I came back here in 1922 to preach, but something took place in the meantime, and if I get around to it, I'll tell you what took place. And uh, it took place, and I got into trouble, and I've been in trouble ever since. All right, let's go back to the 12th chapter of Genesis, uh, and we find here the same thing in when the, we said now the call, the covenant, and the circumcision and the confirmation. Two immutable things 
in which it is in God Im, uh, impossible for God to lie. At the time Abram became Abraham and was circumcised, God again said in the twenty in the uh, 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 seventh uh, chapter His blessing, and then in twenty two eighteen He said, "In thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed." Now, before we forget it, let's remember this. When Abraham offered his son, Isaac, on the altar, we're told he was called the friend of God. The friend of God. Several times in the Bible, Abraham is called the friend of God. More than 30 times in the Bible, God tells us that he did certain things for Israel because of his oath. He says, I am not doing this for your sake. You are a rebellious, stiff-necked, disobedient people. But I am doing this because I swear to Abraham that I would do it. And that's the reason God is yet going to save Israel. He's not going to save Israel because Israel deserves to be saved. He's going to save Israel because the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. And he tells us in the 36th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, I'm going to save Israel for mine own holy name's sake. And in the 11th chapter of Romans, he says, I'm going to save Israel for the Father's sake. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He renewed his covenant and oath with Isaac and Jacob because he started it with Abraham when he began a new movement. Now I want you to think of this. The first 11 chapters of Genesis cover about 2,000 years from the time that God said the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head. 2,000 years. It seems that God was in a hurry to get over to Abraham. Because when you get to the 12th chapter and read the name of Abraham, then in the Old Testament you have 39 chapters and 38 books. And all of those 39 chapters and the 30, uh, 38 chapters and the, uh, the 39 chapters and the 38 books refer to the natural seed of Abraham. When I was broadcasting over WIT, they had four or five uh, very rich contributors who were Jews. And I said something one day about uh, the Jews being blinded. The superintendent, the manager, called me in and he said, uh, well, he was very unkind, he was an ungodly man. He said, listen, I'm kind to let you broadcast eight times a week. Don't ever mention the word Jew over this station again. He said, they're not worth saving. Let them go to hell. That's what he said. They are worth saving. But he made that statement. So after that, I had to refer to the circumcised offspring of Abraham. <laughs> talking about. <laughs> well, that's 
you will find all of the Old Testament beginning with the 12th chapter. Now, the first 11 chapters deal with 2,000 years of the history between the time that God said the seed of the woman shall bruise the serpent's head until he called Abraham at the age of 75. And in passing, let me say this to you. If you do not know the difference between uh, God's message to uncircumcised Abram and circumcised Abraham, you never learn the difference between the gospel of the circumcision and the gospel of the uncircumcision. Abraham is called a Hebrew. He was an Eberite. Eber lived 427 years. You know, Shem lived to be 600 years old. He was 98 years of age when he came out of the ark. He was, uh, uh, he was born, uh, he was 100 years old, two years after the ark, and he lived to be 600 years. He lived through eight or ten generations. Eber lived through a number of generations, and Pelic is a very significant man back there because the word Pelic means division. And in the days of Pelic, the earth was divided. But Abraham came from Shem, and he came from Eber, and he was called an Eberite. He was not an Israelite. His grandson, Jacob, in the 32nd chapter of the book of Genesis, the 28th verse, his name was changed from Jacob to Israel. Israel means prevailing with God, having power with God, or a prince with God. It has three meanings. Wherever you have the word E-L, God is always implied. Elijah means God is Jehovah. Joel means Jehovah is God. Nathaniel means uh, the gift of God, and Jonathan means Jehovah Nathan, the gift of God. They're reversed. And Elijah and uh, all the way through where you ever have the word El. Dan means a judge, so Daniel means the judge of God. Now, it's very interesting to note that God gave the son of Hagar, Ishmael, he gave him a name with his name in it, Ishmael, the God hath heard. And he told him that he would be at the head of seven princes. And it's very interesting to note, though he was a wild man and cast away, he came back and helped his brother Isaac to bury his father Abraham. Then it's very interesting to note that the twin brother of Jacob married the daughter of Ishmael. And if you want to get all mixed up, it's a wonderful thing to study about the Ishmaelites and the Edomites and their trouble with the Israelites clear down to the uh, Gulf of Aqaba and the Gaza Strip. You can trace it right down through Muhammad and all the way through. It's very interesting. If you have time, come over and spend seven or eight hours with me while I'm laid by, and we'll uh, go over and study it together. Very interesting. All right. Now let's uh, notice this thought. Brother Stam wrote a book entitled Moses and Paul. Now, if you go back there and buy all those books, then we're going to ask him to write on Abraham and Paul. 
That would be an interesting story. Did you know in the last 16 chapters of the book of Acts, not one single person is mentioned except Paul and people who had dealings with Paul in the last 16 chapters of the book of Acts? And during those chapters, he says, as a wise master builder, I laid the foundation and the wise master builder, architecton of tecton, is only a carpenter and an archbishop or an arch archangel. We know it means the head. He was the head carpenter. Now he was the head carpenter and he called himself a pattern. Before I went into the ministry, I had built 154 houses. And you know, I went to Winona Lake to a Bible conference one time and left the men down there building a house and I took the, uh, took the blueprints over the house and they were lumped up. And I got back and they had made some real mistakes on the house. And did I go after them? And they said, brother, how in the world do you expect us to build this according to the blueprints when you have them locked up across the street? How do you expect anybody to know what God is doing today unless they realize that uh, Paul is the head carpenter, not Peter? The, uh, so many of our fundamentalists have followed the Roman Catholics. They followed Peter, and they're trying to build the tabernacle of David instead of the body of Christ. Now will you turn with me, please, to the... Uh, Seventh, uh, the uh, eighth chapter of John, at the thirty-seventh verse. The eighth chapter of John, at the thirty-seventh uh, verse. And notice what the Lord Jesus Christ says here in John eight thirty-seven. I know that ye are what Abraham's seed. All right, now let's read the 44th verse. Ye are what? Of your father the devil. Now notice, who was their father? The devil and Abraham, and they were Abraham's seed. All right, now let's go to the third chapter of Galatians. And the 26th verse, and we read there, somebody at the church says, don't read so fast. Time you get to Galatians, uh, uh, Ephesians, I am yet getting to Galatians. So let's take it easy a little bit. Uh, 3.26, ye are the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And... The 29th verse, if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now you see, you have seed of Abraham who are the children of Satan in the 8th chapter of John. They're the natural seed. These seed are members of the body of Christ. They have been baptized into Christ and they have put on Christ and they're the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus and they're the seed of Abraham. 
Not so glad to hear Brother Baker say, because some people say they were the seed of Abraham up to the 20th of Acts, and then they weren't the seed of Abraham anymore. Well, it says here, you're the seed of Abraham. Now I'm sure, now turn please to the 16th verse. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith, Not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is what? Right. How do you see the three seeds? You remember Hebrews 2.14, that our Savior became a partaker of flesh and blood, that he might through death destroy him that had the power of death, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, for verily he took not upon himself the nature of angels, but what? The seed of Abraham. That he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. Now when he became uh, a savior, he became the seed of Abraham. It's very interesting to know that the twelve apostles and the Lord Jesus had very little to say about Adam. You have something of the genealogy in the third of Luke, and then the Lord referred about in the marriage ceremony. He made them in the beginning male and female. But the first verse of the book of Matthew is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now when the Lord said to Abraham, And these all the nations here be blessed, a king shall come out of thee, and a great nation. Kings shall come out of thee. Well, we might study the many kings, but the three kings that are outstanding are Solomon, David, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when the Lord Jesus Christ was born, he was not born to be the head of the church. Uh, you cannot get people to believe. You can read it to them over and over again, Matthew fifteen twenty-four. Jesus said, uh, can you people on the back seat here? I have a little more volume, but I'm holding down, way down here in my diaphragm. Uh, he said to them, uh, when the Lord was talking to them there, uh, what were we talking about now? <laughs> huh? 1524. Uh, when I take one look at Hesselgrave back there, he's so good looking I forget everything. <laughs> I want a nice game of soda right after meeting. <laughs> he said, I am not set but under the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now people say, how can you reconcile that with John 3.16? For God so loved the world that he's gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Well, you can't reconcile that until you read my book on John, <laughs> the Gospel of John. But uh, it is a very strange thing, isn't it very strange? You have the word world more than 70 times in the word John, in the Gospel of John, and the word Jew. And it's a very strange thing that you never have the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to a Gentile in the Gospel of John until he stands before Pilate. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he speaks to one Gentile woman and one Gentile man. 
The only Gentile man that Christ ministered unto while he was here on earth was a Jew who had built a synagogue for the, uh, the Gentile who had built a synagogue for the Jews, and he loved the Jews. And the Lord said concerning him, I have never seen such great faith, no, not in all Israel. Now, don't any of you go out of here and say that Mr. O'Hare said the four Gospels are not for the church. I don't believe that. I believe what a colored man down in Roseland said after I'd been teaching there. We have a few here that were in that Bible class years ago. And after I'd been teaching there, he sifted Sam to finish the, do the finish work in concrete work. And after it was, uh, I was through teaching, he came up one day and he says, I, I think I got it now. He said, these last seven epistles of Paul are sealed. That's the sifter. And you put all the rest of the Bible in that, and, and if it stays in there, it belongs to this age. If it goes through, it belongs to <laughs> upon a dispensation. Well, he had it as a sifter or a seed. But I do say to you that every word in the Bible has to be studied, even the first epistles of Paul written during the period covered by the book of Acts. Every, every epistle must be studied in the light of Paul's last epistles if we're going to rightly divide the word of truth. Paul wrote that in the last epistle that he wrote, Second Timothy, right before he said, the time of my departure is at hand, he said, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, uh, remember this, we're not going to have time to get through with this, but we have the three seeds. We have Israel and the church and the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything in the Bible from the 12th chapter of Genesis to the last chapter of Revelation is the unfolding of in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. It's Christ. Now Christ has a ministry to, to the natural seed. He has a ministry to the, those that are called the seed who are members of the body of Christ. There is nothing in the Old Testament to say that Jews and Gentiles would be baptized by one spirit into one body. There is nothing in the Old Testament about the dispensation of the mystery. It was, as Dr. Einstein said, it was not only hid in the scriptures, it was hid in God. It was hid from ages and from generations. And I think you ought to know the difference between uh, Ephesians 3.21 and Romans 16, uh, 15 and 16, it says that Jesus Christ will be in heaven until the times of the restitution or the restoration of all things spoken by the mouth of all the holy prophets since the world began. There is a kingdom of God that was prepared from the overthrow of the world and carried all through the Old Testament. There is a kingdom of God, uh, 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 including the church, which is the body, and we were chosen in Christ from before the overthrow of the world, and the Old Testament prophets were not only silent concerning this period, but they were 
ignorant. It was not made known to them. And the body to which we belong is called the joint body, and we're told it's the dispensation of the mystery. Now, why are we to make it known? We quote uh, Ephesians 3, uh, 9, but we ought to quote 3.10, to make all see what is the dispensation of the mystery to the intent that now unto principalities and powers in the heavenlies by the church might be made known the manifold wisdom of God. Now, uh, I want to close up briefly with this. I told you about the difference. I was here in 1900 and 19 with Paul Rader. Then Mr. Rader asked me when they built the new tabernacle to come and help them dedicate it. At that time, he was a grace preacher. Later on, he went into the healing movement and became the successor of A.B. Simpson in the uh, Missionary Alliance with their slogan, Christ my Savior, Christ my Sanctifier, Christ my Healer, Christ my Coming King. And... Uh, then he took a stand against me, and they had a meeting one night in the tower when I had my nervous breakdown in 1932. Mr. Lincoln and Mr. Oliver and Mr. McNamara and Mr. Reader were up in the tower, and he says, O'Hare's a very sick man, and God's going to kill him. God's going to kill him. Somebody almost killed me last year. He said, God's going to kill him. He's taken a stand against divine healing. And they all hollered amen. So McNamara had never heard me, and he tuned in the next three days and got, a, got into the message and came up and got a couple of books on divine healing. He went back and he said, Mr. Rader, I agree with Mr. O'Hare. And they had established the gospel, Chicago Gospel Mission at that time, and McNamara was the superintendent and uh, Paul Rader suffered uh, relations with him, and then they took it over, and now our dear brother down there is a real gospel preacher like our brother Bill is down at Sunshine, preaching the gospel of the grace of God. Well, anyhow, not many years after that, I was at the deathbed of Paul Rader, one of the greatest men that ever lived. I held him by the hand, and he said to me when he was dying, O'Hare, you're a grace preacher. There are very few of them in this world. Don't you ever let anybody take your message away from you. Well, I said, I'll try not to. <laughs> and I want to tell you, he had a victorious, triumphant Christian death. Paul Rader was a man of God. He was a real man. But in between that time and the time that I, uh, Mr. Ironside had to go uh, to the uh, Atlantic coast, he said, Mr. O'Hare is here, and I feel perfectly confident I'm turning this uh, conference over to him. Well, I'd been down to Indianapolis in the meantime, and I had a little experience down there. And uh, after I talked, his, his son, Ed Ironside, ran the book table. And uh, after I preached three or four messages, he took his father's books on what the scripture teaches about baptism, and he put them underneath and covered them up. Well, 
When his father got back, he used the scripture, I guess, mark them that caused division. Uh, his father wasn't well pleased with it. He was supporting his son, who was at Dallas with the work. But uh, I want to tell you how I came into that message. I was preaching in, in the Empire Theater in 1921 in Indianapolis, and Jim Nipper was there, and he said, I want you to see the different denominations here. Get them to hold up their hands. There are about 40 people from the American Holiness Society, 30 from the Missionary Alliance, there are over 50 Pentecostals, there are about 25 Nazarenes, there are Presbyterian Baptists. We had 12 or 14 different denominations. Well, I'd make a statement, and the folks over here do this, and the folks over here do this. <laughs> and the next thing, you went over here, they were doing this, and they were doing this. And heal like everyone was healed. All they had to do was walk in the shadow of Peter. They don't lay hands on the, uh, many things like, uh, uh, for many things that were spoken in the book of Acts because you go through the whole period. But anyhow, when I gave the three reasons, there were two Pentecostal preachers. There were three there all together. And I was introduced to a Nazarene preacher and the and the uh, Pentecostal preacher, two of them. And they were in the same neighborhood, but they were like the Samaritans and the Jews. They had no dealings. They didn't even speak to each other, although they were both sinless. <laughs> and one of them said to me, he said, I said, you mean to tell me you haven't sinned since you were sanctified? He said, no, I don't have any sins, but I have faults. Well, I said, did you ever look up the definition of that word false? Confess your false one to another. I said, that's one of the strongest words for sin. Well, I didn't know that. I said, there's some other things you don't know. But you know why they didn't speak? Because the Pentecostalists claimed the eight gifts in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians, and the Nazarene claimed the six gifts. He wouldn't take tongues and interpretation of tongues, and they had a falling out. And he said to me, you think I want to be a fanatic? You know what happened to the last Pentecostalist preacher here? He said when he died, they called him in there, and they got from the coroner, the health authority, they got the right to keep him 48 extra hours. And he said they were in there fanning the breeze of the order from that part. And they were trying to raise that man from the dead. I want to tell you, my dear friend, you have just as much right to raise a dead person to life as you have to put your hands on a person and baptize them. The same Lord Jesus that said, that guy said, raise the dead, and you can't find one place in the Bible where he ever rescinded it. And if you don't find it in the last seven epistles of Paul, where you find the one baptism, you'll never find the answer to the people that preach of what they call the full gospel today. Well, after I gave the message, one brother didn't come back. But six years after, I saw him in Austin walking into the assembly of the Plymouth Brethren, of all things, that Pentecostal preacher. He slapped me on the shoulder, and in the meantime, he had married a beautiful woman. He slapped me on the back, and he said, Honey, here's the man that led me out of Pentecostalism. I didn't know it or not at all, but he came that night. But the other fellow came out and out. Three reasons why, uh, why tongue ceased when Paul reached Rome. The next night, when the 
He came back. He said, I believe you're right. The next night he said, I'm through with Pentecostalism. The third night he came back to me and he said, Brother, was I honest with you? Was I up in? I said, yes. Will you be one? I said, sure. He said, I can prove by the same three reasons that water baptism ceased if tongues did. Oh, I said, you can't do anything of the kind. Oh, he said, that's what I thought about you when you told me. Will you study? And I went to the hotel in Indianapolis and stayed up till after one o'clock in the morning. I said, that man is absolutely right. And you'll have to hold on to the healing and the signs and the angelic uh, de uh, jail deliverances. Would you tell me this? Why was Paul delivered miraculously from the jail during the Acts period? And why did he remain in jail after he reached Rome? Why in the last the 27, uh, 28th chapter of the book of Acts, why did he heal, heal those pagan idolaters? And he goes over to one of the faithful saints to whom he committed his deposit and said, Take no longer water, but drink uh, wine for your stomach's sake and your off sicknesses. Trophimus have I left at Malatum sick, and Epaphroditus, he said God had mercy on him and raised him up. Why didn't he say, Dear Timothy, you've got a sick stomach, I enclosed, find a handkerchief that I rubbed on me and blessed. Why didn't he do that? My dear friends, signs, now let me say this to you, water baptism and the Lord's Supper are never anywhere connected in the Bible. Never. But baptism is mentioned over a hundred times, and without one single exception, now I challenge you to get it, I've, I've, I've been at it for 35 years at it, I challenge you this, any place that you can find water baptism that you do not find another religious sign or a feast day or a miracle or something supernatural, every single case without a single exception. And when I got through, and I'll be through now, when I got through, a man walked up and he said to me, here's a, did you know Moody Bible Institute is teaching exactly what you teach? I said, uh, I wasn't, when I was teaching about uh, the tongues and the signs ceasing, and they handed me the book of A.E. Bishop. Now listen, they printed six editions of that book, and they got the personal endorsement, endorsement of Dr. Schofield. And this is what it says, just as uh, very uh, plain language. Listen. In the latest epistles of Paul, not only is it noticeable that the sign gifts are nowhere in manifestation, but a different order is brought forth by the Holy Spirit for the correction of prevailing hobbies and fanaticism. A different order. Mr. Haggai challenged me to a debate, and the way he worded it, water baptism doesn't belong to this age. Water baptism did belong to this age, and we're in the same age in which they had water baptism. Now, Dr. Scopio doesn't teach that a new age began after the 28th of Acts, but a new order in the same age. 
Dr. Bullinger believed that a new church began. And uh, I was in New York eating with Mr. and Mrs. Fitch. They had been with the Plymouth Brethren. And uh, she spoke uh, a little too much and they quoted uh, the, cha- the verse there, let the women keep silence. Let them ask their husbands at home and so forth. So she wouldn't go anymore. She liked to talk. And uh, she was a wonderful character. And she paid for the plates of Dr. Schofield. And that was in 1910. In 1920, he changed his ideas. So, if we just had this in his Bible now, well, of course, then they couldn't sell it. <laughs> this, now, notice what it said. The signed gifts of 1 Corinthians 12 were operated only during the period covered by the book of Acts. A careful study of the epistles, especially of the latest epistles of Paul, will give you the normal course of the church during the present dispensation and will dismount all from their hobbies. Is it the Spirit of God or Satan who turns the eyes of sincere Christians back to Pentecost and away from the goal placed before them in Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians? Six editions, 31 years. And Norman Camp, I met him one day and I said, what in the world are you fighting me when you're preaching the same thing? He says, how am I preaching the same thing? I got the book. He said, how did this book ever get into our our uh, bookstore? Well, I said, my dear man, the last time I read the proof over at the printer, you were reading the seventh edition and you signed it, Norman Camp. And I said, you read the whole thing. They don't know what they believe. And as long as we have that to contend with, and God is using the rod of fanaticism and trying to bring them to their senses. Oh, i got a lot to say, but uh, I just want to say this here. The book here that covers it is entitled The Three Groups of Premillennial Grace Bible Teaching. Those who begin this dispensation of grace on the day of Pentecost, those who begin it before Paul wrote his first epistle, and those that begin it after the 28th of Acts. Now we're going to give you a very special bargain. We don't want to take any books home, and we always do that. Fifteen of our books back there, take your choice, fifteen books for one dollar, which is one-third of the cost of the printing. Now, if every one of you do not buy fifteen books, we'll be back there and put the FBI after you. Or, uh, if you want to buy, we give you five free books if you buy Mr. Baker's book back there. Well, how many have we sold, Charlie? We sold, I think, Oh, it's so more than 500, haven't we, Bob? Oh, yeah. All right. Well, it's quarter after 12, isn't it? <laughs> I'll finish, uh, I'll finish when I meet you in heaven. <laughs> Thank you very much. Pastor O'Hare, I'm sure we all feel that we've been feasting with the meat of the word. 
and enough ice cream and cake thrown in to make it a full course dinner. <laughs> I heard that Brother Hasselgrave had arrived. We've been looking for you all morning. You better come up here and dismiss us in prayer this time. And while you do that, may I remind you that all of our messages are being taped. And if you'd like to get one or more copies, will you go back there and see our brother Larry Thompson and sign up for them? And uh, you'll get them at cost. A very wonderful service. We were thinking along this line, but when we explored it, we felt maybe it'd be too expensive to have the messages taped, but our brothers come equipped to do it and willing to have them made up for us. And I'm sure that you'll want some of these messages and not least the one that you just heard from our brother O'Hare. I think that covers all the announcements at this time. We have one hour, and we want to see you back here in this auditorium again. Let us all stand. Brother Hester Gray, would you dismiss us from prayer? Our gracious Father in heaven, truly we do thank thee for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the love that was manifested toward the world in giving him to be our Savior. We thank thee for thy word and for the riches of that word. And we pray, Lord, that as the word is unfolded here in this conference, that many will grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Dismiss us now with thy blessing and benediction, we pray, for we ask it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.